Lord Jesus, we ask that you would so enliven us with your Holy Spirit that we would not just proclaim your works with our words, but also in our lives through the grace of you alone. Amen. Please be seated. We continue with the phrase of the creed, he shall come to return, he shall return rather, to judge the living and the dead. He shall return to judge the living and the dead. There's an old um, story about shepherds in East Anglia, that region of England down on the Eastern Peninsula. And it's actually been verified by archaeology that the shepherds of the region used to fill their caskets with sheep's wool in addition to their bodies. And then the casket would be nailed shut and they'd be lowered into the ground. And the thought was that it was to remind the good Lord that he too once was a shepherd and to have mercy upon them for not being in church as often as they might. It's a charming story, but I think it also lends itself to looking at the judgment of Christ and the fact that in God, judgment and mercy are tied together. You know, judgment's gotten a bad rap lately in our culture. I don't want to be judgmental, we say, or it's not my place to judge, we'll say in conversation. The first phrase is nonsensical. We can do nothing without judging. We get up in the morning and we judge. We judge that the space beneath our feet will stand. We judge the moral character of those around us, that I can walk out the door and not be cut down by someone. Or something so simple as to the fact that my wife, Leah, will follow through with making breakfast as she tells me that she's going to do. You see, we actually judge both morally and physically all the time. And yet, we're told by our Lord in the beginning of this chapter, we're not to judge other people's souls. So the first point, not a real main point to the sermon, is don't confuse judging with judging the hearts of your friends. It's fine to judge attitudes. It's fine to judge things. It's fine to judge actions. But we do not, and we dare not, judge souls. That's left to our Lord alone. What does scripture say about judgment? What does God's judgment mean? Well, what does the scripture say about judgment in general? It's good for those who are just, and it's not so good for those who are unjust and wicked. Right? Judgment's good for those who are just or righteous, and not so good for those that are unjust and wicked. All we have to do is turn to the Psalms to see this. Psalm 98, verse 8 and 9 reads thusly. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. But it's not so good for the unrighteous. Nahum Chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. So, you know, our culture tends to slough judgment off 
condemning it itself, which is ironic, because that's a judgment, but also tends to dismiss God as the judge, either for good or ill. Sometimes I think that even we as Christians take God's wrath and judgment not serious enough, or sometimes take it too serious. Um, we, I, we, as a congregation, joined with the Lutherans, a number of us, and saw uh, Martin Luther, uh, an idea that changed the world, down at the Capitol Theater this past Thursday. It was a great time of, of mutual gathering together. But Martin Luther's first initial experience of the Christian life was one where he could do no good. One where he could do no good. One where he felt God's judgment crashing down on him. And in a sense, he's right. Until you understand how wretched and wicked you are, you cannot see how gracious and merciful God is. And our culture tries to dodge the question. We try to make God's judgment more palatable. We mock those that preach fire and brimstone. Although if you listened to the readings today, you saw quite a bit of fire and brimstone. We slough off judgment trying to make God more palatable to a culture that's reticent to believe in him anyway. And scripture doesn't back up that more palatable God. It doesn't reveal a God that's indifferent to sin. It doesn't reveal a God that doesn't care about goodness and evil. Quite the opposite, in fact. You see, despite people's quickness to justify their own faults and excuses, they, would, they want to ignore the faults of others. And that's the good news of God's judgment, that God is a judge that sees all, hears all, witnesses all. But we don't see that. Maybe you've heard the phrase from Karl Marx that religion is just the opiate of the masses. Well, if you believe, believe that, you have to chuck the Bible, you have to chuck Jesus, and ultimately you have to chuck Christianity. Christianity is not just judgment in order to keep social order. Jesus talks more about hell in the Gospels than he does heaven because judgment is such a key part. Look with me at the text today, Luke chapter 7, verse 13. I'm sorry, that's wrong. We're in Matthew. Look with me at the text today in Matthew, and it's in your service booklet. Chapter 7, verse 13. Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And then jump down to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What's sandwiched in between those two? Pericopes, they're called. What's sandwiched in between those two? What's Jesus talk about? He gives a, 
a lesson, an illustration. The warning against false prophets, talking about the fruit tree, right? Judge them by their fruit. Exactly. What's sandwiched in between but an illustration of what Jesus is trying to say? Do you think that's coincidental? Do you think that Matthew just throws that in there? Like, well, let's talk about fruit trees here. I don't think so. Matthew's giving us an example from our Lord of what it is. He's elucidating what it means when Jesus says that the gate is narrow and that many will call and will not hear a good answer. What it's telling us is that evidence is being collected. The judging has begun. The events here on this earth matter afterwards. There's nothing that goes unnoticed by God. Hebrews 4.12 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see, this is not just for the Christian, this gospel passage, but it's for the world, for everyone, for all of creation. And because God is just, he is enraged by sin. When we treat him, our fellow human beings, or any part of his creation disrespectfully, not in accordance with his will, or in accordance with the laws that he gives us in the Old Testament, in the Ten Commandments, or in Jesus' words, when we sin in the flesh with things like gluttony, lust, spirit, or, or in the spirit with things like pride and wrath, I'm sorry, not wrath, malice, when we sin in those ways, they're angering to God. And God's anger is to be feared, friends. Psalm 76, 7 reads, But you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? J.I. Packer writes, that God's justice is not so much a cool, detached justice as it is a vigorous act against evil. And there will be a reckoning when the final judge will come to judge the heavens and the earth and his kingdom will have no end. And notice, we read that in Daniel, but we also read it in the Revelation passage. Who is it that's gathered around the great white throne? Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. Did you read it? The prophets? Who else? Revelation. It's in the bulletin there. Verse 12. The dead. Yes, the dead will all give an account. Believer and non-believer will give an account. You see, just not believing in God doesn't make you exempt. It's like just walking out the 10th floor of a building if you don't believe in gravity is not going to make you immune from gravity. Right? You're going to fall to your death. So it is with the judgment of God. Whether you believe in it or not, it is. It is. And why is Jesus so harsh? 
Why is he so insistent in the gospel passage? Why does he talk about hell and trees being thrown into the fire? Why? Why does, you know, Jesus, take a chill pill. What's the problem? Because Jesus preaches the reality of the way things are. And Jesus cares so much about you and me and people out there that he's going to give it to us straight. The way is narrow. The judgment is real. And after our death, there is no chance to escape the fire if we remain unrepentant and not turning to Christ as our Savior. Now, what is the narrow way? Because we go on and we look at Jesus saying, that there is a narrow way. Is it a philosophy? Is it just believing the right thing? Is it just being nice to those people around you? Is it just having principled life? Or being a good person? Is it thinking that somehow you'll stand before that throne and the good that you do will somehow outweigh the evil that you did? Is that what it is? I don't think so. The commentary I was reading this week uh, quotes Russian novelist Ivan Turgenev, you might have heard of. He wrote this, he said, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. Let me read that for you again. He said, I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. If we're relying on our own goodness, we cannot stand before God. Is it coming to church and calling yourself a Christian that saves you? No. Is it calling Jesus your Lord as so many, as so many insist? No. And you know, that might seem scandalous to some here. But look, it's not my words, it's Jesus himself. In verse 21, not all who call Lord, Lord will be saved. So, is it even doing great works? Maybe it's healing people. Maybe it's doing miracles. Surely that brings one into God's good graces. What does Jesus say? No. Verse 22 mentions that. But go back to, to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21b. What is it that saves us? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What does it mean to do God's will? What does it mean to accept that and act it out in our lives? Is anybody capable of that? We might say out to the Lord Jesus, I'm not capable of it. I try to keep the Ten Commandments, I try to do my best. But we don't have access to God the Father's mind as Jesus does. We can't clearly communicate with God the Father as Jesus can. And if that's the standard, I'm damned. And so are you. Except, who is the one that is able to perfectly follow the will of the Father? Do you see in the text here? 
Jesus brings us down. But then he says, who is the narrow gate? In John 10, 7, he says, truly, truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. In John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the only way for you and I to not stand damned and condemned in the judgment hall of God is by taking Jesus Christ as our own or having him take us as his own is the better way to say it. The only way that you and I can stand before a righteous and holy God is to be found in Jesus Christ. And the only way to be found in Jesus Christ is to have his Holy Spirit in us. Right? Because Jesus, we just read, is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead from sitting at the right hand of the Father. So how are we to be good? How are we to be holy? How are we to be sanctified? Only by the Holy Spirit, friends. Only by the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And what does that look like? Well, Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 5, to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. But he goes on. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and after the image of the creator. What's Paul saying there? In the Holy Spirit, when we shed that old identity, we put on the new self, the new identity in Christ Jesus. And it's in that righteousness, in his alone, the only one that knows the Father's will. It's in that that we're able to live out a life that's pleasing to God. Do you know, the early Christians saw the judgment of God as a good thing. As they were being beaten, martyred, suffering, it was a good thing that God was going to come back to judge the living and the dead because they held their hope in only Christ. The New Testament references the return of Christ no less than 300 times. That was their touchstone. And so it needs to be ours as well. So I ask you, going forward, how do you interact with this idea? How do you interact with the idea that the king of reality is going to come? He'll return. All that's wrong will be made right, and everything will be laid bare before him. The books will be opened, and you'll have to give an account, along with everybody around you. How do you react to that? If you're outside of Christ, it should be terror. Because no one can stand in God's wrath. If you're found in Christ, it should be joy. Because Jesus has died for those sins that you've done and will continue to do till the day that you die. And as long as we continued in our life of repentance and seeking his will, and as long as the Holy Spirit is working in us, we are made righteous before that God. 
The gospel is good news, friends, because ultimately it is life-saving. Ultimately, it's Jesus plucking anyone who's willing out of the morass of sin and death. The judgment of the king is good news. Let us be clothed in him like those shepherds of East Anglia who were buried with the wool. Let us appeal to the good shepherd out of mercy and his grace. Amen.